section of Colossians we're going to be looking at comes right off the lips of Jesus. But uh, before we look at that, let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord, we are here that we have and recognize that we really have little power. Um, but we are lifting up our heart and voice to you. We acknowledge that before you all things are dust. We recognize that we can't capture in our mind or comprehend your power. But here we are, like children, addressing a parent or a friend talking to a friend. If you could do this, if you could not do this, then we wouldn't have a hope in the world. All that comes our way today and this week, we have little to do. It has little to do with our choices and the things that we have the power to change. But we do trust you. We trust that you have us in your hand, the safest place in the universe to be. It is you who is in charge. Because you are our parent and our friend, we are not afraid. We can be sure that all is well and all will be well. Dear Father, we ask that you take this day's life into your own for safekeeping, that you guide our thoughts and our feelings, that you direct our energies, our ambitions, that you instruct our minds, sustain our souls, that you take our hands and make them skillful in serving you, that you take our feet to move us according to your desires, that you take our eyes that we'd see the beauty of your creation and the beauty of your being, and we ask that you take our mouths as we speak encouragement and truth. Father, we ask that you make this day a day of obedience, a day of joy, and a day of peace. Empower us to get through without, without falling into depression or apathy or anger. And Father, may your kingdom come to each one of us this morning, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, that uh, you can learn anything by, uh, by looking at a YouTube video. They, they teach you everything. And I just found this out a couple of years ago when I needed to replace the carburetor on the little Honda Tiller that I had. And I found that on YouTube and went, wow, this guy knows what he's doing. And, and he walked me right through it. And it's like, oh, that was a piece of cake. And it is. And I, I typed in um, uh, DIY in, uh, to Google this, this, uh, this week, and uh, this is what Paul's kind of talking about, a DIY religion. Uh, I just typed it in, and you can get everything. You can get uh, do-it-yourself chicken and noodle soup. Uh, you can get do-it-yourself sourdough bread, or do-it-yourself solar panels, or charging, changing a carburetor, or do-it-yourself fly casting. Uh, it's just about anything. In fact, it's kind of become an industry in and of itself here in America. Uh, it's just, you can uh, actually get on DIY sites that have this whole library of videos and instructions of how to do just about anything. And it kind of all started back in the, in the, in, after World War II, and uh, Wikipedia defines DIY, do-it-yourself, as, as a method of building, modifying, and repairing things by oneself without any direct aid from a professional or a certified expert. So that's what it is. And we kind of think of it as we sort of invented it, and it kind of came out as when, when a lot of families started owning homes and they wanted to do home repairs and modifications, that's when the DIY, the do-it-yourself movement kind of took off. And we think that it's part of our culture and kind of just a modern kind of thing. Well, it, it isn't, actually. 
uh, there is, they found a temple in Italy. An archaeologist found a temple in Italy built by the Greeks. So they built a Greek temple in Italy. And uh, there's, it looks like a picture of a piece of it. And I think that's the artist's conception of what it would have looked like. And strangely enough, it came with instructions on how to do it. And uh, the archaeologists are literally calling it the uh, ancient Ikea temple. So, <laughs> because it came with instructions. Well, that carries over in religion too, or Christianity. And uh, as much as we would like to admit it that, uh, that, that Christianity would be immune to that, uh, it's not. Uh, we still think that we can, we can do this sort of uh, do-it-yourself Christianity and we're, we're okay with that. And whether we even see, even if we talk about grace, sometimes the way we run a church or the way we kind of affect and, and influence each other, it really, or what we have in our mind is really kind of a do-it-yourself sort of Christianity. We, there's always somebody who comes along that's got the secret for the spiritual life or it's got the, the code, has broken the code to tell us when the end times are coming or, or uh, if this is the secret of the spiritual life. Anything, you know, you can think of, we found it and this is how you do it. If you're really one of us, then you would do this or you'd believe that or you would say this or that. Uh, when I was in seminary, I, I picked a, my thesis topic and it was, a, it was an obscure passage in the Old Testament that was very problematic and I was going to solve the problem. I was going to, if you just had enough work, you had enough time, you had enough dedication, you could solve this problem and, and come up with an acceptable interpretation. And my reader, the guy that was going to read it and grade it, uh, he was on sabbatical when I had to pick the topic. And when he came back, I was meeting with him and he said, if I was here, I never would have approved this topic. <laughs> Off to a good start. And I wish he was there and I wish he would have said, no, Tommy, don't do this, don't do this. Because he was right. It's, it's kind of an unsolvable problem. But I thought I was going to do it, but uh, I didn't able to do it. Well, Paul kind of deals with the same thing in Colossians. It's not something new. It's not something just peculiar to the American church or the North American church. It is something that goes all the way back. And what Paul writes about um, in today's passage is just, like I said, right off the lips of Jesus in Mark chapter 7. Uh, let's trace about where we've been, just kind of catch us up to speed, how we, how we got it here so far. At the beginning of the book, Paul prays for the Colossians to be full of spiritual understanding and wisdom. That's kind of the overriding theme of the book, uh, that's, that, uh, this, this spiritual wisdom. He calls them to reorder their lives around this spiritual wisdom, and that things need to be changed. And then he says, we find this wisdom in the person of the universal Christ. And he says, this mystery... That, that was hidden in the Old Testament has now been revealed, and this mystery is Christ in you, Christ within you, Christ within me, Christ in our midst. That is this mystery that he talks about, and we, this is where we find this wisdom, and we all have a part in God's plan for this new creation that he's taken on, that he's given. And then finally, last week, we see that Christ has inaugurated this plan, God's plan, by the, by the cross and the resurrection, and Paul is saying that he claims victory over all rulers and all authorities. We're now in chapter 2, verse, beginning with verse 16, these last sections of the chapter. And Paul, typical Paul, in uh, verse 16, the most important word of this paragraph, of this, this last section, is a connective, therefore. Therefore. Whenever you're studying the Bible and you see the word therefore, you always ask yourself, what's it there for? Okay, it's a very important word. 
And so he says, you're, Paul has got victory. He's triumphed over rulers and authorities. Therefore, and then he's going to tell us some implications about this. And basically what he's going to tell us is that give up this do-it-yourself Christianity. Give it up. This is not where it's at. He says it's, 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 um, it's useless, it's counterproductive, and basically it's absurd. And he starts off with, basically, with two commandments, and he says it, you, know, there, you want to do all these things to kind of get your way toward God, but there's two things, but there's two commandments that you need to be ready for. And he says, don't worry about this because Christ has given victory over the authorities and the rulers. So you've already been circumcised, he said last week. You already have, have, have a, the temple amongst you, and that is, the, that is the true temple, the person of Jesus Christ. And he says, the Torah has no accusations against you. Therefore, he says, don't let people judge you. So beginning in verse 16, he says, when it comes to God, a DIY religion is useless and it's counterproductive. He writes, therefore, do not let anyone pass judgment on you in the matters of food or drink or in the matters of festivals and new moons or Sabbath. These things are a shadow cast by what is to come. And the body that casts the shadow is that of the Messiah. He says, don't let people judge you. They're not, when he says this, this do-yourself do religion, he says it's basically useless. He says, but don't let people judge you. He's not saying don't let people criticize you or call you to task. I don't think he's doing that. What they are doing is excluding them. He is saying that, that the Jews were saying that, yeah, you're welcome into our, our, the people of God, but unless you practice these dietary laws, unless you celebrate the festivals, unless you celebrate the new moons and the Sabbath, then you're really not one of the people of God. And Paul is saying, don't let them do that to you. Don't let them judge that. Don't let them judge you. Now, it's understandable that why the life in the synagogue was attractive to the Gentiles. It's very, very understandable because the, the, the world of the Gentiles it was, was not a good one. It was not very good. A lot of bad things happened. Uh, you couldn't get justice unless you were able to pay for it. And it was especially bad news for, the, for women. And so it's kind of understanding, I think Paul gets it, of why the life in the synagogue is attractive. You're, you worship one God instead of all these fussy other little gods that are running around. You have a set code of morality. I understand that that's a good thing. But he's saying, don't let them do that because it's just a shadow. Now, first of all, I want to say what he is not saying. He is not saying that Christianity has nothing to do with Judaism. Okay? To say that, he would be sawing the branch that he's sitting on off the tree, okay? Christianity came out of Judaism. It is part of the story. What Paul is telling you is that Christianity is the fulfillment of Judaism, that Jesus Christ fulfills those promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that this is the fulfillment of Judaism, that it's not separate from it. He's also not saying that material things are bad. We know that Christianity glorifies or at least appreciates the material creation. We, he, Paul expects us to live out our faith in the concrete world. We even have objects, material objects in our own rituals. We're, doing, we're going to celebrate one this morning. 
He's not saying that the material is bad. He's not trying to teach some sort of Gnosticism where the spirit is good and the material is bad. He's not saying that. Christianity is world-affirming. It is good. That's not what Paul is opposing. What he's saying is that, that these things that mark you as the people of God are just a shadow. Now, when he talks about the shadow, I don't want to get too far into this, but I think he might be referring to Plato's allegory of the cave, if you're familiar with that. Plato said that, that his, he said life is like prisoners being chained together and you're only able to face one, one direction and there's this fire behind you and people are putting objects in front of the fire and all you see are the shadows. And he said that's what we're like in the world. We're just seeing the shadows, but when we die, we're going to see the real, the real world. Okay, that's not what Paul is saying. He's probably referring to that, but, he's saying, but he said that's not what it is. He's saying the shadow are the things of the past. He's saying the things of the past, these dietary laws, the festivals, the, sh- the Sabbath, all those things are shadows of things that are happening in the future. Things that are happening in the, in the new age, in the new creation. In other words, those things are pointing to the reality. And he says, why would you be so obsessed with the shadow, with the things that are pointing to it, when you've already got now, you've got the reality. You've got Jesus the Messiah. And these shadows just point to that. So he's saying not that they're bad. In fact, they're precious. But just recognize what they are. They're pointing to the reality. And he says the thing that is casting that shadow is the Messiah himself. He uses the word body. It could be the church that he's talking about, but I think he's probably talking about the physical body of Jesus Christ, that it is casting this shadow. And he says that means those things are, at this point, useless as far as marking you out as the people of God. Then he goes on in verse 18 and 19. He says, Do not let anyone rule you as out of order by trying to force you into false humility. Or worshiping angels. They dwell on visions they've had and they, and they get puffed up without good reason. It's just merely human thinking. They don't stay connected to the head. It's from him that the whole body grows with growth that God gives and wants. It is nourished and held together by various ligaments and joints. So not only is it, is it, is it useless, it's sort of counterproductive. And he says not only are the, the regulations or it's just a shadow that point ahead. He said, also, you're around people who have this, this super spirituality about them, of, of super pride. So not only are the regulations sort of useless as marking you out as people of God, but so is this special experience that they think you ought to have, this, this, this some spiritual life that you've got to experience, and if you don't, you're really not the people of God. Verse 18, that first part, my routine in preparing for messages on Sunday is on Tuesday is when I translate the passage and just study the passage on Tuesday and Wednesday. And I kind of diagram it, do all that kind of nerdy stuff with the verbs and all that kind of stuff, clauses. And then on Thursday, I start checking commentaries just to kind of see if I'm on track or if I need to change or if I miss something here. And I had, verse 18 was like, I have no idea what he's saying. I, I could not figure it out. I couldn't figure out what the verb was. I couldn't figure out what the subject was. I couldn't figure out where the clauses were. It was just these, these strange words. It was just really, I thought, man, I'm really struggling here. What's the deal? You know, I'm getting forgetful. I don't know what my, I can't, I lost all my skills. And then I opened a commentary on Thursday 
And uh, the, this is the direct quote from the, com- the guy that wrote the commentary, the Greek scholar. He says, verse 18 defies translation. It is incomprehensible. <laughs> and on one hand, I'm going, okay, so great. We don't know what verse, verse 18 says. On the other hand, I'm thinking, well, I'm feeling pretty good right now. <laughs> I'm not so bad after all that this guy was even struggling. But I think the general gist of it is that these people have had some sort of spiritual experience. And they think that if you're not repeating that experience or living that way, then you too are not part of God's people. And it's just a matter of, he calls it false humility and worshiping of angels, which is one of those phrases that you're looking at going, what in the world is he talking about here? It could be that they were actually worshiping angels. It could be that their, their worship was so lofty that it was on the level of angels. That could be it. It could also be that at that time they thought that the Torah was given to the people, to the Jews, by angels. So it could be that they are worshiping the Torah as a gift from the angels. And I kind of think by the tone of the passage, that's maybe what Paul's getting at. And I also think that's very relevant for us, those of us who take the Bible seriously, that we don't go too far and say, oh, we begin worshiping the Bible instead of the person. The Bible is sacred writings, but we do not worship it. It's the person we worship, and I think we need to be careful here. And he says they get caught up in their visions and and all the things they had, but they just get puffed up for no good reason. It's just human thinking. And it becomes counterproductive. Why? Because they end up separating themselves from Jesus. He says they they are no longer connected to the head. The head being here the source of life, like the headwaters of a river. It is the source, and he says they've disconnected. It's not the Colossians that are disconnected. It's these people who are disconnected. They've gotten so caught up in their own spiritual theology, their own spiritual worship, their own spiritual experience, that they've actually cut themselves off from the Savior himself. Separated from the head. There's a lot of discussion these days about what is the biggest threat to the church especially in North America. What's the biggest threat in the church? And you have all these people telling you what the biggest threat of the church is. No doubt, no, there's no secret that, we are, that the church in North America is struggling. Uh, we are bleeding, especially the younger generation. What is the biggest threat? And some people will say, well, the biggest threat is uh, Christian nationalism, white Christian nationalism especially, where we have America and Christianity, is, at least if they're not the same, they should be married to each other. Or that we have compromised character as long as we can get our political agenda accomplished. Others will say, well, it's, it's, it's preachers and stuff who are soft on, on uh, gender issues and sexuality issues. Transgender, same-sex marriage, those, sort of, those are the biggest threats. Well, here's my opinion. The biggest threat to the church is anything that draws our affection away from Jesus. Anything that draws our affection away from Jesus, that's the biggest threat. You look at Israel, what was the biggest threat of Israel? It was always inside. It was always idolatry. It was never the armies out there. It was always the devotion of the nation on the inside. This, to me, is the biggest threat of Christianity 
of the church. Anything that draws our affection away from Jesus Christ. He goes on to the next paragraph. And he said, this is why do-it-yourself religion is not only useless, it is not only counterproductive, but it is also absurd, absurd because you have died with Christ. And when you die to Christ, you are, you are losing your previous status. When it comes to God, a DIY religion is not only useless and counterproductive, it is absurd. Verse 20 says, if you died with the Christ, coming out of the rule of the worldly elements, what's the point of laying down laws as though your life were still merely worldly? If your life is just here, if it's, it's, be, if it's beyond that, if it's beyond just the, the world, then what's the point? It's just absurd because we have, we have been released from our previous status. We are out from under the rules and the principles of the world. We're out from under that. And he said this is not just a warning against regulations. This is a warning against the people who are still in the world trying to impose those regulations that are that are in rebellion that are opposing what god is doing now in the person of jesus christ this is what he's opposed to and he says think about it it's pointless you think all the pro all the issues about what you eat and what you drink and he says he goes on to say he goes on to say don't handle don't taste don't touch those are the rules rules like that have to do with things that disappear after you use them in other words after you eat it's gone so who cares? What's the point? Then they're just human commands and teachings. And that's exactly what Jesus was saying to the Pharisees that, that Rob read earlier. These may look like wisdom by promoting self-fabricated piety and humility and severe treatment of the body, but they really have no value when it comes to keeping in check their self-indulgence. When it comes to, to our greed, to our lust, to our our thirst for revenge, for whatever that is, it really doesn't matter. And the Pharisees were the perfect example of that. They kept all the rules, but when it came down to being generous with their father and mother, they played the loophole and kept the money to themselves. Oh, it belongs to God. And he says that's where the problem is. It's not really a work against regulation. It's against the people who are opposed to what God is doing. Things that disappear, who cares? And Paul says, recognizes, he says, yep, it gives you the veneer of wisdom. When you're punishing yourself and you're keeping the law and you're keeping the rules, it gives you the idea that this is, this is wise, this is holy, this is saintly, this is virtuous. But he said, it's just a facade. It's just a facade. He said, this is DIY religion. This is do-it-yourself religion. And this is do-it-yourself humility. And he says, I respect the Gentiles who aspire to this Jewish way of life. It's very admirable. But he says, all those worldly reg regulations, they died with Christ. And then Paul sets us up for chapter 3, because, which we'll get to next week. You have died with Christ, and in chapter 3 means you have also been raised with Christ. So he's telling us all these things that you don't do. You know, don't, don't let people judge you for those things. Don't get caught up in this false humility, this do-it-yourself religion. But next week he's going to tell us what, it, what does work. And basically what it does work is this freedom of love. That's where it works. The great commandment was not 
thou shalt be right. The great commandment was be in love. That's where it comes. And so what he's doing here, he's drawing this contrast between radical grace and a do-it-yourself religion. And radical grace is very different. Do-it-yourself religion is a dead end. When I came looking for salvation, and many of you maybe have felt this way before, we, we, we look for salvation and, we, and we, we come to Christ, we get saved, whatever that means in your situation, whatever that meant to you at that moment, and we get involved in the church, and then suddenly we feel like we're trapped in a box, maybe, or even a cage or a prison. I heard a, a Christian counselor at a Christian college say, that uh, most of the students who come to her are English majors, but a close second are religion majors. <laughs> she said they come to her and they want to talk about theology and they want to talk about church and they want to talk about sex and they want to talk about marriage or they want to talk about dating and they want to talk about all the expectations that are put on them and, and how they're ever going to manage this. And she goes, sometimes I just think the solution is Let's talk about God. Amen. Let's do that. Because all those expectations get more and more, and it feels more like a box. More like you're trapped, and you can't get out. Why? Why does it feel this way? Why does we say we want to follow Jesus, and we want to follow Jesus, and we end up feeling trapped? We look for this radical Lord, this radical Savior, and we end up feeling like we're in a cage. People told us the truth will set you free, and then you sit back going, man, that feels like a lie, because I feel like I'm in a box. It may be a cage of your own making, something that you fabricated in your own mind. It may be a cage that was fabricated by someone else, a preacher, or a Sunday school teacher, or a youth pastor, or a church, or a parent, or a spouse. But suddenly we get into this feeling of just being trapped. And we like, well, I, I have this map, and i got to stick to this map. For me, we were just talking about this before we met. I was talking with Colette similar about this idea that, that just feeling trapped and how Sue and I had to kind of go through this disorder in our Christian life. Because for me, it was the need to be right and to say it right. And I got to thinking, where happened to that little the skinny six-year-old boy who came to Jesus um, looking for a friend and then got domesticated by a bunch of rules and strict theology? And when I got into seminary, it would just be just lots of, of outrageous arguments over things that most people don't even care about. Baptizing babies or adults? Does hell exist? What's it like? Can I believe in evolution or not believe in evolution? And you, we start arguing about all these kinds of things. And if you could have sat in on some of these conversations on the McDonald's that was across the street from our dorm, you would go, are these guys going to be the virtue ministers in our churches? <laughs> they fight about everything. 
I had this one professor who I absolutely loved and he, because he was really different. He was different than the rest of the faculty. His name was Zane Hodges. And I followed him around like a puppy dog. And I, I remember arguing with my housemate, good friend, and he thought Zane Hodges was a heretic. And, uh, and I said, Zane Hodges is the most creative faculty member at Dallas Seminary. And that's the one thing he goes, that I agree with. <laughs> so creative, he's a heretic, you know. And we would fight over these things, and I wanted to be right. But this do-it-yourself Christianity, it is nothing but a grotesque maze. And you will be trapped in it. And I keep going back, where's the Jesus of Colossians chapter 1? The image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. The creator of all things visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions, principalities or powers are all created by him. He himself is before all, things of all things. All, all things are held together in him. He is the head of the body, the church, as well as the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, so that he himself may become the first in all things. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in the Son. Where is that Jesus? That's the one I want to fall behind. We, this do-it-yourself religion, kind of relies to me on a GPS. Where we want to have the GPS with us, and the GPS tells us, you know, every stop sign, every traffic light, turn left here, turn right here, you're 500 meters away from your destination. That's what we want. But that's do-it-yourself religion. We need to lose the GPS. Lose the GPS, and when we lose the GPS, Jesus shows up. And we find out that he is the road. I don't need the GPS, Amen. because he is the road. And he's the one who shows up. DIY religion demands certainty. Radical grace demands trust. That's what Jesus asked for us. Trust that's cloaked in humility. That's what he wants for us. We're going to celebrate communion this morning. And uh, the world functions on a principle of reward and punishment. And... Uh, just some game of crime and punishment and reward and, and performance and reward. And almost every religion in Christianity conclude, included wants to drag us down into that, that realm of reward and punishment. They want to drag us down. But what Jesus and what Paul is offering is something that is very different. Different from the ground up. Thoroughly, thoroughly different. And it is radical grace. With that, we move into a whole different arena. We live in a whole different world. It's like living in another world because we are in another world. That's what living in radical grace is. God likes you before you do the ritual. We don't do this communion because God needs it. We do it because we need it. And we do it just to, to be that child that tenderly expresses our love and devotion to a loving Father. That's why we do it. The great commandment is not, thou shalt be right. It is to be in love. And love flourishes in the realm of freedom.
where we tenderly and, and warmly express our devotion to Jesus for what he has done for us. That's why we do communion. Not for him, for us. So I'm going to read um, Paul's instructions. Um, well, actually, I think I printed it out here. Rather than try to flip through it and try to find it, I'll just read it after I printed it out. Uh, about taking communion. And we're going to do it by intention this morning. And uh, we'll have some people here. And if you have never done it this way before, you, take, you just come up as the Spirit leads. The, the worship team will be playing. You can sing, you can meditate, you can pray, whatever suits your, your, uh, your need at the moment. And you come and take the bread and dip it in the cup and take it here at the, here at the altar and return to your seat. We also have gluten-free. Some of it's gluten-free. And we also have the, the kits. Uh, don't feel embarrassed if you, if you prefer to take one of those kits back to your seat. No problem. That's why we have them here. So let me read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Then I'm going to ask Alan, Lisa, and Jerry if you'll come up and help me. And the, and the worship team will take communion first. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be answerable only to the body and to the blood of the Lord Jesus. <laughs> 